Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if the truthiness even matters. Let's see if we can get it now. Hopefully that resolves all of our issues. Uh, sorry about that dead air there. Um, trying out OBS Ninja as a streaming platform as opposed to StreamYard. Um, I've heard some good things uh, on both sides of the fence about that one. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what that's about. Uh, Robbie, if you can hear me now, please absolutely put it out in the chat. Thank you for being here to help out. Um, I think I've got it resolved now. Perfect. Awesome. Fantastic. So thanks for helping me out there, Robbie. I would have recorded an entire stream and had absolutely no audio. So that was super, super helpful. Um, was just hitting some pre-episode uh, notes for tonight. Um, we're going to talk about whether or not as bourbon is fragmenting. But before that, I uh, just had the opportunity to get back from French Lake, Indiana. Last week was fall break for my wife's school and my children's school. And we had an opportunity to travel up there has all the wonderful things that are great about America. You know, they've got a safari park, which is a bunch of wild exotic animals behind fences. Um, and you get to drive through them and feed them and let them make a mess in your car. And then they have these, you know, amazing indoor water parks, which is exactly what the uh, United States is about. But beyond that, there's also an opportunity to visit French Lake Spirits. And I've been waiting for a chance to sneak up to French Lake, Indiana to be able to try out some of the stuff. I have a handful of Alan Bishop's bottles already, but there's a couple that there were not available online retailers. So I was able to sneak up and get some Kasha bourbon at Larry Bird. Yeah, home of Larry Bird, which, you know, Larry Bird, from what I remember, is sort of a jerk. But um, and also, a, you know, a couple of fantastic uh, little town uh, experiences. But I picked up this Kasha bourbon and I'm going to steal a phrase from... Uh, my friend Jack over at Hood Sommelier, uh, this this whiskey sort of makes me mad because now I'm having to like think about what's actually in this bottle. It was uh, it's unique. There's there's a whole lot of things going on, and I absolutely enjoy it, but it's not something that I can just sit down and, and forget about uh, anything else and just sort of drink it. I actually have to think about it. After that, once you get known at work as the whiskey guy, anytime people are coming in to visit. You get tapped on the shoulder to give them a tasting or teach them something about whiskey or do something uh, fun with whiskey. And so this Monday night, I had an opportunity to run an online tasting, and that was super fun. And in that opportunity, we tasted through a handful of items, had a great time. Um, but after the tasting was over, we ran through uh, a themed tasting. Uh, one of the attendees had brought with him some of the Maker's Mark FAE-01. Um, and for those of you that are uninitiated, you have uh, fatty acid esters is what it stands for. And we were we were chit-chatting, and one of the ladies that was a part of it, you know, she was talking about how she really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, well, that stands for fatty acid esters. And this woman looks me dead in the eyes and goes, what did you just say to me? Scared the bejesus out of me because um, she is a rather fit human being, and I'm pretty sure she could take me in a fight. So 
Um, that happened. And then um, tomorrow, tomorrow I leave for yet another trip to Bardstown. And this one's a little bit different. About six months ago, one of my friends calls me and she's talking about this relay race that is happening from uh, essentially from Bardstown through Danville and up into Lexington. She's like, yeah, you know, it's a 36 hours worth of running. And, you know, there's 12 people on the team and you run like 20 miles. And I was like, you sure you called the right person? I'm not sure that. I'm the one for you. She's like, I need somebody to drive vans to, t to hold the relay people. I'm like, that, that's a thing I can absolutely do. So tomorrow morning I head towards Bardstown for an opportunity to drive these folks around from distillery to distillery and uh, watch them run. So this is this will be a uh, super fun event. There's supposedly going to be bottles for sale. Uh, I know they're for runners, um, but there's a handful of the folks that are in my bus that aren't really interested in drinking whiskey. And since I'm volunteering my time, I feel like I've got an opportunity to get at it as well. I think that's all I've got for kind of the, the pre-read to it. Um, so let's get into this. Um, there's been a bunch of different people that have started talking about is bourbon broken? And I think broken maybe is the wrong term. I think what they're really after is, is, is it fractured? Um, because you know, broken, uh, is much more severe. And so is it starting to, to come apart? And that's the, the first step to it. Um, and some of those things that point towards whether or not we think that bourbon is broken is, you know, the existence of secondary markets, um, scarcity, inflation on prices, and, you know, maybe the three-tier system. And so that's what I wanted to talk through tonight. I'm not entirely sure how long tonight's episode will run. Uh, it'll run as long as it wants to. And if anyone, hey, Zachary Jones, thanks for showing up tonight. Uh, if anybody decides they were like, hey, I might want to try to join in, let me know. I can drop a link to you and you can absolutely join in and talk about any one of these things. So... The first thing is the sort of the, you know, 8,000 pound gorilla in the room of secondary markets. And as whiskey nerds, we really like to get upset about the existence of whiskey markets. And I, I've, I've been perplexed by that for a while because I think if you'll find anybody who collects whiskey uh, as an adult, if you ask them, you know, what did you collect as a kid? You'll find that they were into comic books or baseball cards or magic cards or some other thing, you know, telephones, pocket knives, something. They collected something in their life. And all of those things had the primary market and a secondary market. They had stores that were dedicated to reselling cards after they had been opened. They have, you know, shows that are dedicated to selling them to, to having a different price than what you paid coming out of the pack. So I'm 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 curious as to why you know a human being could go on Amazon and buy a Funko Pop for nine dollars, and then six months to a year later that nine dollar Funko Pop is worth three hundred dollars, and we as human beings are like, yeah, that's perfectly fine. But as soon as we apply the same type of logic to whiskey, it's like, how could you ever ever do that? And you know this is kind of a, a primary focus of you know there's an article in Whiskey Advocate in the last issue that's talking about oh the inflationary prices that are happening because of secondary this is what it is on the shelf and this is what it is I, why are we so axle wrapped or obsessed about it and part of it is because we want good whiskey at cheap but kind of an example of good whiskey at cheap there are dozens if not hundreds of craft retail craft distillers that are making really really good and unique whiskey at a relatively inexpensive price when we think about oh george t stag's not going to exist in 2021 btac there's a whole bunch of stuff you could go buy from a um 
craft distiller or even some you know bottom tier shelf stuff that is really really good so um i think what it is that we're after the unicorns the tough to find things and we want to get them at an inexpensive price so we can brag about the fact that we got this at retail and i am as guilty of this as anybody else i have a bottle of weller 12 over here that i waited until i could purchase it at near secondary price or near retail price because i refused to do you know the secondary market thing and um, so, I'm, so i'm criticizing it while also saying you know why do i care why, why do i care what's going on with any of it and the existence of secondary markets like puts retailers in this real weird place of they know that if they sell their product their product at a msrp value um, there's a high probability of the person who purchased it from them taking that bottle and then selling it on the secondary market and netting a profit off of something that they could have profited on. And me as a consumer, my job is not to make more money off of whiskey. My job is to drink whiskey. And if I can make money off of whiskey, it's a little side thing, but literally their business model is to sell alcohol for as much money as you're willing to pay for it so they can generate profits. Like that's their responsibility. Their responsibility is not necessarily to the consumer. It's to the people who are invested in that business. And so do they sell it at a secondary price or do they sell it at a market price um, and, and let somebody else make the money? And, you know, I've always, always thought, you know, if I were an independently wealthy individual that owned a liquor store, I would like to sell you know, tough to find unicorn type bottles that go to the secondary market to everyday uh, shoppers, but maybe putting the caveat on it that you got to pull the plastic off of the bottle before you walk out the door and try to uh, limit people from being able to, um, people from being able to resell it. But, you know, then it's like, you know, I have these little tasting bottles that are like this right here. And I actually have the plastic shrink wrap that I can put around the neck of it and I can shrink it back down. And uh, whenever I ship it, like I shipped some for, to our friends over at Chill Filter, Robbie Dedlow, who's in the chat over here, I put shrink wrap on it. So that way the, the neck of it doesn't back off and it spills out the whiskey during transit as my uh, courier that I employ to get in his car and drive to Arizona or um, to Idaho to deliver things, it, it doesn't ever spill anything. And so you could absolutely still do that. And so you're kind of running into that. Um, you know, and some retailers will employ a methodology of selling it to, to their, their, um, primary customers, the people who are in there all the time, who are buying stuff and making sure that, that they're taking care of their customers. Um, but even that can backfire. And I, I think, you know, like taste select repeat, which is an online group that did an OKI pick. And I was luckily lucky enough to get an OKI bottle over here. The day after he put that on the market, the people who are, you know, trying to be a part of this group and have purchased things from him in the past, they pick this bottle up and then they turn around and try to flip it on a secondary market. So should he have sold the bottle at a higher price? Um, the manliest man, absolutely the manliest man. Let me restate. If you're watching this right now and you don't follow Chill Filtered Podcast, absolutely do that on Instagram or head over to any podcast platform. It would be preferred for you to listen to it. You absolutely don't have to listen to it. Just go give them a five-star rating and say they're the um, best whiskey podcast without the word whiskey in it. I don't know. Um, they're fantastic guys. But um, 
these retailers are faced with some really, really tough stuff. Some of them will do lotteries and, and they'll have, you know, lines wrapped around the building and you end up with something that, like what happened at Old Forster where people are, you know, camping out three or four days in advance. And some of those people are likely going to sell it on the secondary market. The key is, is that the secondary market exists because there are people that are willing to pay more money for a bottle and that's okay. Because if they're, you know, satisfied with what they purchase at the price they purchase it at, I'm not going to criticize them for, for that at all. But it's also indicative that whiskey is is not only um, existing, but it's thriving and it's booming. And so um, there's plenty of whiskey for the rest of us to get out there and get. Uh, if we want to avoid the the secondary market, absolutely. Um, and then there's this the scarcity versus perceived scarcity that comes around as well, and um, a lot of people will, um, a lot of people will spend their time slamming on somebody like Buffalo Trace because um, it's hard to find their standard shelf standards or to find E. H. Taylor to find something along that lines. And as a normal consumer, it's confusing, right? Because we think of things in a very, very, very short-term concept where you can make a thing and then you can sell a thing. Um, you know, at one point in time, my mom was making and selling soaps, you know, like some, some craft soaps. Well, you know, it took her a few hours to make some soap and by the weekend she was selling it at a farmer's market, but there's a big difference between that and whiskey and, and, you know, whiskey has had a chance to recover, but you know, you're laying down something, uh, Hey, bourbon lens. Thanks for showing up tonight. Uh, absolutely appreciate it. Um, Scarcity is a tough thing to deal with from a, from from a a maker side, specifically in whiskey, because whiskey is going to sit in a rick house somewhere between five and seven years for most standard offerings, right? And so what you have to have is you have to have the, the foresight to know that five to seven years from now you're going to need to have a quantity of whiskey on hand that is relatively significant. You got to be able to predict that with a high level of accuracy or you end up with a glut of stuff that's going to force you to sell for cheaper prices or you're going to have to let it age for another year or two to have something it, it's it's this like rolling game that is super tough to do and um people want to say oh you know uh, retailers are 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 breaking whiskey they're making thing making bourbon bad because um they're creating a false scarcity they're not necessarily creating a false scarcity. They want to sell every single thing they can for every single dollar that they can. The scarcity is because there's more of us buying whiskey now than there were five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago. If you go back to 2001, almost no one was buying bourbon. And you look at it now and there's literally hundreds if not thousands of different distillers that exist now that weren't here you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, now we're looking at, okay, we need to be able to produce, you know, X in number of proof gallons of whiskey every year. But is that what they're going to actually need in five to seven years? Are we getting ready to be on the downside? And I look at this like Bitcoin. I was talking to one of my coworkers and they were talking about how, um, you know, 10 years ago, maybe not 10 years, five years ago, one of their friends was suggesting for them to take all of their money and put it into Bitcoin. Um, and if you've looked at anything about Bitcoin pricing, you'll see that, Bitcoin was relatively inexpensive then. They could have put $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 in and been incredibly rich now. But at what point do you get out, right? Like You're looking at it and you keep thinking, it can't go any higher and it can't go any higher. And is that where 
whiskey producers are today is they're looking at the consumption rate and the popularity of bourbon and they're thinking it cannot go any higher than this. Um, I heard a uh, podcast uh, this week or last week that was talking about, you know, Bill Samuels was one of the best at predicting market trends of consumers of whiskey, and he was able to lay down whiskey to predict for that. But I don't. I think you could take even the best of the best and put them against what's happening in whiskey right now, and you would not be able to accurately predict what's going to happen in five to seven years. It could be that they need twice as much whiskey as they have now, or half as much. And that's that's like a huge thing, and, and it and it and it floats into this inflationary concept where people are like, oh well, you know the 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 shelf price on a piece of whiskey or a bottle of whiskey right now is twice what it was twenty years ago, and it absolutely should be twice what it was twenty years ago. Um, there's there's a lot of things that go into play there. Uh, there's some statistics out there, and I, I'm not going to cite where it comes from, but you can go and find where. Um, the price of whiskey did not match inflation in the United States. It was actually way under the inflation in the United States since the mid eighties. Um, you know, if, if inflation is 3% a year, whiskey price inflation was one and a half percent. So when we look at 2005, six the prices of whiskey were probably 10 to 20% lower than what they should have been because they couldn't increase their prices. Nobody was interested in buying large quantities of bourbon or whiskey. Um, they just it wasn't something that they wanted to do so they couldn't increase the prices well now that the that demand is up they can actually start increasing the prices to what they should be to cover their costs not only that but the labor that goes into a bottle of whiskey is the cost of labor 5 years ago but you're looking at the cost of labor now plus the inflation inflation over the next 5 years gives you the cost of what it is in 5 years plus your taxes plus all of these other things and so you know, like as whiskey people, we complain about the the secondary markets. We complain about scarcity, and we can't complain about new bottle prices. Like, oh, it's it's way too much. And you know, what it is is that we're stuck. You know, whiskey is one of those things where we all sort of get stuck in a rut, and we want it to be exactly like it's always been. We want to walk in and pick up a bottle of Well or Twelve Year off of the shelf at thirty five dollars and walk back out the door again. And the reality is, is that in 2001, when that was a possibility, it was still probably underpriced by 10 or $15. Um, there's no way a 12-year bourbon should be that inexpensive. Just nobody wanted it at the time, so that's what it had to be. And I feel like I'm sort of starting to ramble, but um, we'll move on to the next one. So we've got this three-tier system that exists, and this one I could go either way on. Uh, is whiskey broken because of the three-tier system? How's it going, Matt? Thank you for showing up tonight. Um, is whiskey broken because of the three-tier system? Maybe, maybe not. Um, or is it fractured because of the three-tier system? The three-tier system does a couple of things. Um, the three-tier system allows for uh, the consumer to have a somewhat of a degree of protection from retail from from whiskey brands gathering up and saying hey we're going to change the prices to this there's a there's a person that sits in between and it can help us understand uh, what the price of a thing should be or try to drive market conditions do do any number of things um, but they can also artificially limit what i can get here and send it somewhere else and so it's kind of a double-edged sword on what happens there i think whiskey retailers i think that Whiskey producers might like the three-tier system, whereas whiskey retailers probably don't. 
um, because it does take some of the onus and some of the difficulty off of um, the suppliers and put it on the, the people who are trying to sell it. Uh, you know, how do you get at whatever it is you're trying to get at? And if you're a producer of whiskey, it also enables um, it enables the brand to let someone else worry about getting it on the shelves in the store, worry about supply chains, worry about all of the logistical things that are just somewhat nightmarish. Um, you know, I think about the three-tier system, the distributors feel very much like a pharmaceutical sales rep. you got the people who are making the drugs, and you got the people who are educating about the drugs, and the people that sit in between have to do some degree of that education. And so your your whiskey retailers, your bourbon retailers, or not, sorry, your whiskey producers, bourbon producers, are being able to shirk some of that. Uh, you know, they have their brand ambassadors that go out, and they run high-level tastings, and they... Um, get people to to get hyped up about brands but the day-to-day operation is done by that that logistics specialist from the uh middle tier from the from the distributors um does it need some some revamping probably in the same way that pricing within whiskey as a whole probably needs revamping as well because we want cheap whiskey and cheap whiskey is rarely good and we don't want a secondary market but if secondary market exists it's probably because the pricing isn't right and the pricing isn't right because we've said it's pricing should be right so it all sort of like it, it's this big incestuous flip of things that make whiskey broken so to speak um i can't I cannot be even remotely honest and look at it and say whiskey's broken because if whiskey was broken, there wouldn't be as many craft distillers as there are today. There wouldn't be as many offerings from the varied distilleries that exist. Um, absolutely, yes. Distribution allows for cash flow from a distiller perspective. That's coming from Bourbon Jeeper. Um, if you don't follow him on, on Instagram, you absolutely should go follow him. But it, it takes... It allows a company, so let's let's look at as a whiskey producer, a distiller, if they don't have to deal with distribution, they're not waiting to collect cash on something that they've been paying taxes on for five to seven years. They're able to give it to the distributor and get their money. And now the distributor is holding that for some period of time to sell because a super prime example of that is I pulled about a week and a half ago, I pulled a, a um, Bardstown Bourbon Company fusion number one off of a shelf at a local retailer does the local retailer did they pay for that or did the, did the distributor sell it to like how does it sit on a shelf for that long and who is on the hook for that money well if it was the distiller if it was the you know bardstown bourbon company was they would have done whatever they could to get it off the shelf a long time ago but they collected their money on that bottle so it's likely the distributor or the local liquor store owner that is taking on that overhead and running a whiskey business um, from the distiller's perspective is tons and tons and tons of overhead. And yes, the there is a uh, another con- another statement that's being made here is that each state has diverse rules to get product to the consumer, and that what needs to get aligned. That's what needs to get aligned first. And that's the thing is that if 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 whiskey distillers were interested in that there are significant resources that they have at their disposal. Your, your Beam Suntories, 
your Sazerax, your um, Barton Brands, your Heaven Hill, all of those folks have the money to make those things happen, but they're not interested in doing it because they can get their money and move on to make the next bottle of whiskey. And at the end of the day, that's what I would prefer them to do. I would prefer them to expend their efforts on making good whiskey at somewhat of a high volume so they can you know, satiate our market and let someone else be in charge of distribution, logistics, selling, following the legal guidelines, doing all of those other things. Let someone else take that off of them for now. Because if, let's just say, you know, let's run back 20 years to 2001, we're on the cusp of bourbon boom. We're on the cusp of a bourbon boom. If bourbon distillers were responsible for not only the creation, maturation, or the, the creation, the distillation, the maturation, the logistics, and the sales of it, would they have been able to handle the boom as well as they did? And a lot of people will argue they didn't handle a bourbon boom significantly well, but if they'd had that other, one other little giant logistical nightmare to deal with, how much worse would it have been? And so... While it's painful for us, while people are that are in ABC states where the state controls it, or people that are in states where large distributors play favorites with certain retailers, those are all painful things. But would they have gone away if the distillers had had it? Probably not. I think the the biggest thing that to me is broken right now, if we were to look at a broken thing in whiskey, is the inability of a distiller to sell directly to a consumer at low volume. Um, liquor stores don't make their money off of one bottle; they make their money off many bottles. And you know, looking at things like what Maker's Mark and Jim Beam are doing right now with their um, whiskey drop from Maker's Mark and the um, barreled and boxed from Jim Beam, those direct to consumer subscription type services, I think, are key to success and they need to be opened up to other places and i know kentucky is part of the 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 problem for all of that you know we're very much a regressive buckle of the bible belt state and you know alcohol is bad you can't you know, it's 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 super confusing and it always has been but the existence of those things getting them outside the state of kentucky allowing for um people outside the state of kentucky to ship into the state of kentucky so if i want to get you know I want Alan Bishop to be able to send me a bottle of the Kasha Morning Glory Bourbon. Um, I I would like to be able to do that. I would like to have that come to me, and I would like to it not to have to be some like global agreement, which I'm glad he has an agreement with Sealbox to get some of his stuff out. But when he comes up with a unique one-off thing that he wants to get, and that's you know, as I, I build out this podcast, I like to get things from different distillers across the United States, small craft distillers, and trying to get something shipped here into Kentucky from a craft distiller um, is difficult. You, you have to find it on a, a retailer's website that may be doing, sli- doing business slightly unethically, um, slightly illegally, or ch- charging through the nose because they've gone through the loops and, and the, the hurdles to, to get to us consumers in Kentucky, and it's not just Kentucky, it's Kentucky, it's Tennessee, it's a whole host of other states. The things that break alcohol and whiskey to me are these um, regressive post-prohibition laws that were kind of put into place to um, keep prohibition somewhat alive. And you're absolutely right there. 
Um, it's the the comment is too much good stuff just sits on the shelves so the hustlers can chase Sazerac products. And you're absolutely right. Most everything that I have on the shelf behind me is something that you can go pull off of a retailer shelf any given day. Um, I, I try not to get too caught up in chasing down the hard to find bourbons because they're there's too many things I haven't already tasted that are on the shelf right now for me to waste my time trying to chase something down. That's not to say that if I walk into my liquor store tomorrow and they say, Hey, do you want this, you know, William Lure Weller from BTAC for 2021? I absolutely am going to purchase it, but I'm also not actively listening, looking for it. You know, my, my stuff is things that, that are more realistically findable and, there's a lot of really good whiskey out there. There's, you know, the 1792 shelf standards and there's, you know, store picks. Store picks are another thing. Store picks or private barrel picks. Like Bourbon Lens has the ability to do private barrel picks. And and Bourbon Jeeper went with a couple of folks out to 291 to do a pick. Those things um, are going to be more unique. I mean, if you really think about it, they're more unique than any BTAC offering that you can get because it is a single barrel. And if it's a small single barrel, it's even fewer bottles that are going to taste exactly like that. And I know that with the major distillers, the difference between one single barrel and another can be stark or it can be somewhat insignificant. You think about Eagle Rare single barrels, they don't have like this super huge variation. And when they find one that's way, way off profile, they're probably going to try to sell it as something else. But this is this is sort of the future of what what good looks like for me in whiskey is those single barrel picks from profiles and palettes that I trust, and then beyond that, craft distilleries like craft distilleries are doing some of the most unique work that's out there and making things that are completely different. Um, Five years ago, you would have seen me turning my nose up at Kraft and saying, oh, everything they make is young and different. And it absolutely is different. Young's not the right word. It's different because it's it's largely going to be using a pot still or um, maybe they're using wild yeast or some other type of yeast or they're doing alternative you know, aging methods or whatever. Um, absolutely, Bourbon Lens. Your single barrel picks are better than BTAC because you are an expert. Um BTAC type things are really just trying to create a batch. We could even use the term small batch, which is a conversation for a whole other day. But it's a small batch. It's a batch of products that they blend together to make a somewhat familiar profile. And so we see, you know, George T. Stagg isn't going to be made this year because they could not make the flavor profile they wanted with the barrels they had at their disposal. But a single barrel is, you know, for a small barrel, 40 bottles for a larger barrel up to 200 bottles. Um, well, you know, Matt, you absolutely can taste a bourbon lens, um, pick if you go over to the Patreon and you sign on and you become one of the Patreons, you'll have access to it. Um, I've, I've been Patreoning them for a little while because it's a fantastic podcast, obviously, but hop over there, go follow them. Go see what they've got. They just had a 1792 foolproof and I think they sold through that. I don't know what the next one is, and maybe he'll dump it out in the chat for you to be able to follow through on what it is, but there's always going to be some good stuff that's available there. So I think I'm hitting the part of the podcasts, whatever we want to call this. I don't know if this is even a podcast anymore. Um, this rambling session where I'm just sort of uh, talking into the ether. Um, so that's where I sort of stand. Like the, This whole episode is around the idea of is bur bourbon broken? 
Um, I don't think so. I think that it is, um, I think it's still on its way up. I think we're going to see a lot of other things that are changing over time. Um, I think we're going to see some more growth. I think that the future of whiskey in, in North America is around craft distilleries and around American single malt, but bourbon's not going anywhere anytime soon. So um, thank you guys, Robbie. Thank you, Bourbon Jeeper. Thank you, Bourbon Lens, for showing up tonight and hanging out. Um, absolutely, we'll always shout out Bourbon Lens. You guys have a fantastic podcast with the... A lot of interviews that I'm super jealous of. Someday I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kind of copy your blueprint and do everything that you guys do. Um, appreciate everybody for being here tonight, and we are going to roll out. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.